Greetings and welcome to the pod. My name is Mark West. Things that can sting you are part of every ocean swimming experience, no matter where you are in the world. Associate Professor Jamie Seymour, Director of the Tropical Australian Stinger Research Unit at James Cook University, studies venomous animals and has a particular interest in decreasing the envenomings of humans by jellyfish. He has some personal experience in this area too. He has been stung by Irukandji 11 times. He is a world leader in the studies of the ecology and biology of box jellyfish, which is his favourite jellyfish, and his work has led to pharmaceuticals being made from animal venom. We chatted about how to treat ocean stings, habitats and the influence of climate change on the spread of stingers, and a bunch of other different venomous topics. I started our chat by asking him, so what are the things that can sting you in the ocean? There's, there's no shortage of them, to be honest. Um, and, and the numbers of times I've been rung by people doing long-distance swims going, what do I need to worry about, is, is actually quite scary because it depends on where you are. From, so from the moment you step into the ocean, so if you're stepping off the sand into the ocean to go for a swim, so you immediately have things like sea urchins and stingrays in the shallow water and stonefish, which are liable to cause you issues. Then once you actually get yourself buoyant and swimming, you've then got loads of different types of jellyfish ranging from things like the standard blue bottles or the Portuguese man of war which just about anybody that's been spent any time in the ocean knows about through to things like lion main jellyfish which can get one or two meters in diameter with huge quantities of tentacles out the back end through to things like moon jellies um, which people often see and wonder whether they're an issue and mainly most people don't get stung through them, through to things like Urukanji and box jellyfish, depending on which ocean you're swimming in. So it, it is surprising the number of things that, that seem to be out there to get swimmers when they're, when they're out doing ocean swims. So where are the box jellyfish and Urukanji? How far south do they get? Okay, so box jellyfish, so if you, if you put... <laughs> It split jellyfish into two groups. You had the, the normal jellyfish that most people know about, and then these you know, sort of the roundy-shaped things. And then you had these square ones, which are the box jellyfish. So think of them as like, so we have dogs, and we have you know chihuahuas and Great Danes. So we have jellyfish, and we have the normal sorts of jellyfish, and then we have box jellyfish. Within that, we then have things like the big box jellyfish, um, which is the world's most venomous animal. Uh, and it ranges from around about the Tropic of Capricorn north. In Australia, and then they get we get similar species through PNG, Indonesia, Thailand, and places like that. But think of them as being found somewhere between the Tropic of Capricorn to the Tropic of Cancer. Um, Irukandji are slightly different. Um, we now have certainly in Australian waters we have Irukandji going as far down as Caloundra, Malulaba, uh, and certainly the western side of Fraser Island, and similar uh, latitude on the other side of Australia. Um, and they, again, they then track upwards through over the equator into a similar uh, latitude in the Northern Hemisphere. What you need to remember, though, with Irukandji, there are several different species that give rise to this syndrome. Then there are another group of box jellyfish within the box jellyfish, which are really quite common uh, and sting, but don't do a great deal about uh, things about them. You find them in Sydney Harbour, 
and Adelaide. I remember getting a phone call when the Sydney Olympics were on and they were about to put the triathletes in the water there. And they went, we have box jellyfish in the water. Well, yeah, you have them there all the time. A thing called Charybdia rastoni or a jimble. They sting, they don't do a great deal of damage, but they're there. So box jellyfish are sort of found all over the place, but there are certain types that you need to be worried about and not all of them are going to put you, know, the, the, put you into a life-threatening situation. Is it just a coincidence that the really dangerous ones are at those uh, around the equator in the warm waters? Or uh, is there a reason why they're there? Yeah, look, really good question. <laughs> really, really good question. Um, and it, it, the current theory on this is a little bit fuzzy and depends on who you talk to. But by and large, you tend to find the more venomous animals in a marine environment in the tropical realms. And we're not sure why that happens, but part of it is that by and large, food in the tropical realms of, 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 of um, the world, certainly in the, in, in the water, is harder to come by. It's nowhere near as abundant as what it is in the temperate waters. So in the temperate waters, you get lots of upwelling, lots of nutrients, lots of plankton, lots of fish, things of that nature. Whereas when you get up into the tropical areas, the prey for jellyfish and lots of other things tends to die out a little bit. It's nowhere near as dense. So one of the theories is that because of that, you need to have a more potent venom so that when you come across prey, you may not come across as, as often as you do in the temperate areas. So you need to make sure that it dies before it swims off into the deep blue because you know, you may not see some prey again for a little while. Having said that, there are some holes in that theory, but that's, that's usually the one that most people are holding to at the moment. But to be honest, we're not sure why. That's really interesting. So do you see the same thing in spiders and snakes? Do snakes in the desert uh, hurt you more than snakes in the cities? Yeah, yeah. So again, it comes back to, um, and, and the general consensus is availability of prey items. So that if the prey are really, really scarce, then what you probably want to do is produce a venom that is very, very toxic, so that if you do envenom something, so you bite it and, and deliver some venom, that it's not going to get away. So it's one of the things that... So if you, if you looked at the most venomous continent in the world, it's Australia, without any shadow of a doubt. We have the most venomous species in every group of venomous animal in the world, in Australia, apart from one, which is the scorpions. So everything else we have the top most venomous animal in. And it's thought that if you take snakes, for example, so if you look at the world's most venomous snake from the point of view of lethality to humans... Okay, that's the inland type end. Now, yeah, it is it is so far ahead of anything else apart from the coastal type end from toxicity point of view, and it's thought that historically it only ever came across prey items once every so often, so it had to be really, really toxic. If you then look at the next most venomous place on the planet, it's probably South Africa, and again, prey items for those animals are again historically reasonably scarce. So again, we think they have a, a reasonably you know, toxic venom. If you go to something like a rattlesnake, lots of gophers and things over there, lots of prey items. They don't really need to worry. If they envenom one animal and don't see it and, it and it doesn't die, they're liable to see another one in 24 hours, so it really doesn't matter. So that's the general consensus. But again, there are holes in that theory as well. That's really interesting because some of those animals have... I mean, they're so venomous, they could kill us 100 times over, couldn't they? It's really interesting. They evolved so much. They're so potent. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, so the, the general, I think that the numbers, and I could be out here by a couple hundred thousand, but um, <laughs> if you look at inland taipans, it's thought that, that the amount of venom that an inland taipan 
um, injects into its prey items is enough to kill like 20,000 or 200,000 mice. And it's like, wow. that is just insane. But again, I mean, there are some, there's some good evolutionary reasons for why you want to do that. Uh, um, you, know, you don't want, for example, um, uh, immunity to build up in your prey. So you want to try and kill it several different ways and you want it to die really, really quickly. So there are trade-offs and things for it, but that's the general consensus. Ah, okay. And so, well, you've been stung, I read, 11 times by Irukandji. That's, <laughs> that's uh, are you immune yet? Uh, no. See, look, <laughs> first off, it, it is certainly something that I'm not proud of because um, 11, 11 stings by Irukandji means that I made 11 mistakes. Um, and, and thankfully, touch wood, I haven't been stung since 2002. Um, so it's been a while, and I think that's because we now have enough of the safety protocols in, in place that that doesn't happen. You know, whereas when I first started working on these things, it was like, I think this will work. Well, no, that didn't, so we'll change that. This will work. To, uh, no, that didn't either. So eventually we got over it. Um, but no, immunity-wise, I'd need to be stunned a heck of a lot more time than that to show any sort of immunity. So what should you do then if you're stung? I guess blue bottles are the, the most obvious uh, things, or maybe even sea lice would, would might be the things that you get stung by most. What should you do if you're stung uh, by something in the ocean? Yeah, look, the first thing is, is don't get stung. Right. <laughs> but if you do, <laughs> by and large, I mean, we, we've, we're trying to make first aid for... Um, people that get stung by things in the ocean really simple because it's it's somewhat confusing at the moment. So our general approach now is doing things like DRABC. So first off, if you've been stung and you're breathing and circulation, things are okay, then you don't need medical help. That's okay. Hot water is the first aid of choice. So for blue bottles, hot water works really, really well. Do not go down the track of using ice. I mean, that's one of these old wives' tales. If you use ice, it will actually prolong the pain. So hot water, as hot as you can stand it, under a hot shower, will remove most of that pain in five to ten minutes. Any other sorts of jellyfish or anything that you've been stung by, again, come back to this looking at whether or not the person that's been stung is breathing. If they're not breathing, breathe for them, so CPR. But if they are breathing and screaming at you, hot water is almost certainly going to be the best choice. So if you're stung by a stingray or a bull rat or a stonefish or a blue bottle or things of that nature, hot water. It will certainly, it seems that for the vast majority of cases, this will, yeah, it, it, it's the first aid of choice. And this happens because venoms are proteins. So if you heat proteins up, so if we look for an egg, for example, which is mainly protein, we heat it up, we change its physical characteristic and, it's, and it becomes denatured. So if we do the same thing for venoms, we denature the venom, and it should stop it from working. Ah, oh, that's really interesting. So as hot as you can get without burning yourself, I guess, is what you want to do. Yeah, yeah, 46 degrees is the maximum. 46 degrees C is the maximum, because anything more than that, and you start to give yourself first-degree burns. Right. So, uh, and, and 46 is hot, trust me. Um, <laughs> but, you know, we, we've set up some... Um, we were doing some work in uh, Newcastle uh, where we did a, a, a randomised control trial on blue-bottle sinks. And you can actually get little thermostats you can put in the, in the shower and um, set them up so they go at 46 degrees, turn it on and put the patient under that. 
bang, and away you go. Literally within five to ten minutes, the pain is all but gone. So, you know, and, and a lot of people say, well, if they're out swimming or if they're out on a boat, they don't have access to hot water. You actually do. You know, if, if you're swimming, you probably don't. But if you're in a boat, you probably have tea or coffee with you, or you've got the telltale from the back of the engine, which is warm, so hot water, things of that nature. You know, and if you're swimming on the beach and you come back, you know, if you've left your, your water bottle on the sand, it's probably up around 35, 40 degrees C anyway, and you can use that as well. And so with the more, uh, I guess, things like Irukandji syndrome or being stung by a box jellyfish, you want to get to the hospital pretty quickly, don't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that that's a different kettle of fish for one of a, of a really bad cliche altogether. <laughs> so, um, yeah, yeah, a big box jellyfish thing. So we're talking probably you know two to three meters with a tentacle contact on your body. You have in the vicinity of two to three minutes, and your heart has stopped. So there, by and large, if we can keep you alive and you are still breathing five to ten minutes after you've been stung, you're going to survive. It's those first two or three minutes which are absolutely crucial for a big box jellyfish thing. So if you've been stung and the patient is not breathing, breathe for them. And if you continually breathe for them, we've got reasonable data now that says that prompt and prolonged CPR for these people will keep them alive. So, okay, so that's of, what you need to worry about there. It's like a shock almost. I mean, that's probably it. There's a technical meaning of shock, but it's like there's like a shock that, that can kill you from those things, is there? Oh, no, no, it's definitely not shock. The venom is set up to kill your heart, and right. it goes directly to your heart and stops it. So what you have to do is keep the heart beating until the venom wears off. Right. So, okay. and, and, it's, and it only happens over the first two or three minutes. So if, you, if you've been stung and you're screaming in pain five minutes later, you do not have enough venom on board to kill you. So you're just going to scream and be in all sorts of pain, and we can worry about that and treat that some other way. That's not an issue. Yeah. What you should be worried about is whether that patient is, is, is breathing or not. So that's for big box jellies. Irukandji are another animal altogether. So with those guys, when you're first stung, it's a very mild sting. It's, sort of, it's, it's less than sea lice. And it's just like, oh, yeah, something stung me, and then nothing. And there's about a 20-minute delay. And you go from, yeah, I actually feel okay, to I'm going to throw up, severe pain through the body, feeling of impending doom, you know, muscle aches and pain, difficulty breathing, things of that nature. And it, it, it descends out of nowhere. And again, for those people, you aren't going to be able to do anything for them, for pain release or things of that nature. You need to get them to medical help. Because anybody, by and large, the vast majority of people that are stung by Urukenji are going to end up in hospital for the better part of 12 to 24 hours on pain relief. So if you think you've been stung by Urukenji, you are going to need medical assistance. Does that venom wear off? Is that how you're beating it? Or is there an anti-venom treatment? No, there's no anti-venom for Urukenji. Um, part of the issue that we have for Urukenji-type animals is we don't know what the venom does and how it works. We think at this stage of the game, it gives rise to what we're referring to as a ketocholamine storm, which is a, a, a groovy way of saying we're just going to increase the adrenaline load in your system by an enormous amount and keep it high for the next you know, eight to ten hours. So we think that's what's going on. Um, what basically happens is for Irukandji syndrome, all we do is reactively treat the pain and eventually the venom wears off. So we have no way of denaturing the venom at this stage of the game or treating it so it's not going to have an effect. We just need to get you through that system until that venom wears off. So you certainly don't treat someone with adrenaline like you might do in if, if their heart stopped or something. You don't well, do that with your it's an inter- Well, it's an interesting one because by and large, in some cases, that's exactly what you do. 
Um, and, 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 and it's counterintuitive because the, by and large, for Irukandji syndrome, people are going to kind of, kind of come in with mild pain that will need small amounts of morphine through to the possibility of death. So we've had two deaths and anywhere in between. And about 20% of people that get stung are going to end up in, in reasonably severe cardiac um, uh, uh, problems. And what happens is their heart goes floppy. So instead of beating, so every time your heart beats, it squeezes out about 75% of the volume in, it, in the heart. What you find in these 20% of people that have cardiac problems with irukandji is their ejection fraction, instead of being 75%, drops to about 20%. So you're no longer pumping you know, the, the, the required amount of blood through your body and your heart just goes floppy. And it appears that in those cases, giving adrenaline seems to be counterintuitive, but seems to help the problem. So again, we're not too sure why. It's one of the things we're working on at the moment, but it depends on the person as to what you should or should not do. Wow, okay. And that feeling of impending doom, I've read about that. That, that sounds fascinating. So is that, it's, I mean, it's not having an effect on the brain, is it? Or is that like your, body, your brain reacting to what's happening to your body? Look, it's, it's an interesting one because I originally thought it was psychosomatic. You know, you've yeah. been stung by an animal you haven't seen, 20 minutes later, you're now in a world of hurt. You're sitting in a hospital with a standard ED physician going, well, we can't fix this. We're just going to have to give you morphine until we get rid of the pain. And now I've given you too much morphine. And if I give you any more, I'm going to kill you. So you're just going to have to put up with the pain. Yeah, so, so of to course me, you're going to like, feel pretty <laughs> Yeah, it's like, oh, I'm, I'm crook, you know. Yeah. I've been there 11 times. I know exactly what the progression of the symptoms is. I know what's going to happen. And that feeling of impending doom is still there. And it's not a little feeling. It is, this is going to go wrong in a really big way. And again, we think it comes back to this ketocholamine storm or this increase in adrenaline in your system. If you think of adrenaline, it gives rise to this fight or flight response. So if I scare you, it's like, I've got to get out of here. I've got to go. I've got to go. And you know, there's, there's something going to go wrong. Now, that wears off in 30 seconds. Yeah. But what seems to happen to Irukandji syndrome is your adrenaline levels stay risen or stay you know, above average for you know, six, seven, eight hours. So your body is going, because of the adrenaline charging through your system, we think, your body is now going, I've got to get out of here. I've got to do something. I've got to do something. And that is just there consistently. And it's, it is such a distinctive um, symptom of the syndrome. And I said, Every single time I've been stung, it's been there, and I know exactly what's happening, and it's not psychosomatic. There is, you know, it's your body's reaction to this, we think, this increased load of adrenaline. Yeah, I wonder, is it, it's flooding you with dopamine or serotonin or something else that's going on like, yeah. because of yeah, that? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and, 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 the, and the short answer at this stage of the game is, is we don't know. We're still working hard to try and get a handle on this. You know, it's, it's very difficult to work on patients that have Irukandji syndrome because they just don't want to know anything apart from stop the pain. I don't care how you do it, but just stop it. So we're doing animal models and things of that nature, but working with it with people, it's really tough. That's, that's, it's fascinating if, not that evolution can have an intended outcome, but if that's kind of like a desired outcome of the evolution of Irukandji, like if that, that's just really interesting, I find. That's fascinating. Yeah, look, uh, yeah, but I think you need, you need to, you know, um, Irukandji do not hunt humans. So this is, it, this is the exception, okay? So when you look at what happens when they hunt their prey, which is small fish, you don't see that. The fish dies literally within 30 seconds. So it just, it, it's just the effect that the, the, how... Venoms are set up so they're very, very specific usually, and they attack specific iron channels or systems in the organism that they're designed to affect. 
for us, we just have a series of systems that are slightly different from a fish or things of that nature. So the venom acts slightly differently. So it's not anything that's evolutionary been there. It's just dumb luck that that happens. And it's interesting that you find that certainly for um, the vast majority of venomous animals, the ones that cause life-threatening effects for people are ones that either eat vertebrates as prey, in other words, things with backbones, or they have predators that are vertebrates. So the venom is designed to attack vertebrate or certain organs or systems in vertebrates, and because we're vertebrates, it affects us. Whereas if you look at animals, and there are a variety of jellyfish that eat um, plankton that are invertebrates and prawns and things of that nature, and their venom stings us, but that's about it, and that doesn't show any other effect at all. But the ones that have venom that is, that, that's particular for vertebrates, by and large are the ones that cause us all sorts of grief. You work in the, the Tropical Australian Venom Research Unit, looking at trying to get good stuff out of venoms, I guess. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. So one of the, the, the things that we're also interested in is, is what's referred to as novel compounds for venoms. So, I mean, everybody sees venomous animals as, you know, nasty, vicious animals that are out there to try and kill everybody. And we try to look at it and go, well, these animals have had venoms for millions and millions and millions of years. You know, we've been designing chemicals for like two or three hundred at the best and these guys have been doing it for millions of years. So if you look at things like you know, box jellyfish, for example, there's probably 70 or 80 different compounds in their venom. So one of those compounds may actually have an effect for things that it's you know, not designed to for in humans. And, and for example, we know that in, in big box jellyfish, there's a component that attacks your heart. If you remove that component out of the venom, that venom is then non-toxic to humans, so it doesn't kill them. What we've found is we've removed that toxic component and ran it through a, a series of, of mice controls uh, and the mice had arthritis. Uh, and we managed to actually drop the pain score in, the, in these mice by a substantial amount in two to three weeks. So there's a suggestion that there is a compound in box jellyfish venom that may be useful against arthritis. We found another one that is more susceptible to cancerous cells than it is to heart cells. So that would suggest that they may be able to use it for, for cancer. And the one which, was, which just blew us away, and I thought this is really cool, again, you remove the toxic component, and then we fed the non-toxic component to, to mice. And we had a series of mice that um, would just eat and eat and eat and eat and eat and put on weight and became fat and looked like little tiny guinea pigs within weeks. What we did is fed the non-toxic component to them in their food, and the mice would eat and eat and eat, but they didn't put weight on, and they didn't lose weight. So it was really interesting. That's so there's, interesting. there's all these, yeah, there's all these interesting components in these venoms that, that are there. It's a matter of finding out what they're used for and, and whether there's a positive for them from a, from a human perspective. And I guess that's a journey. I guess sometimes you don't know. Yeah, it's, it's a turkey shoot at some stages. I mean, yeah, it, 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 there was a lot of this done during the early 70s, early, uh, or the 70s and the early 80s, where a lot of big pharmaceutical companies spent billions of dollars finding plants and animals, grinding them up and looking for novel compounds and found nothing. And it was a sort of a really hit or miss 
type thing. So we've gone about it from a different direction and gone, okay, rather than let's just screen things and find out what's going on, let's pull these venoms apart and go, right, this is the toxic bit, it affects the heart. This is a non-toxic bit, it's got four components in it, let's pull that bit out and see what it does. You know, that might change, it might be responsible for causing coagulation of your blood and this bit might attack your pancreas and this bit might attack that. And once you find out what these individual building blocks are, then you can start to look and go, okay, well, it may have an effect, for example, for arthritis or inflammation or cancer or things of that nature. So there's been a real change from rather than just let's do this hit or miss affair, let's now break down what the venoms are, work out what those little Lego blocks are used for and then see whether we can slot that into something else. What's the difference between a poison and a venom? Okay, so poisons and venoms are toxins. If the toxin is ingested, in other words, if you have to eat it, it's a poison. If it's injected, then it's a venom. Okay. So that's the the definition. So by and large, if you eat it and it kills you, it's poisonous. If it bites you and kills you, it's venomous. So So they're both toxins. Yeah. if If you eat a box jellyfish... (laughs) <laughs> you'll have no problems. Not you'll have no problem. No, really. Because nope. your, nope. your, your nope. stomach will deal with it. Yep. Yeah, well, you've got hydrochloric acid and all sorts of things in there and it just churns it up, no problems at all. You've got to get it past your throat first, but if I was to it in your stomach, not an issue. It, it's interesting when you look at poisons and venoms, poisons by and large, and this is a gross overestimation, but by, poisons by and large are a lot more stable than venoms. And they need to be because if it's a poison, it's got to go through your digestive system and its chances it's going to be broken down. So it needs to be a very, very stable compound. Whereas venoms, which are injected into you, end up in your circulatory system, so your veins and your arteries and things, where it's a nice environment to live from a chemical's point of view. So they don't have to be anywhere near as stable. So a lot of poisons you can heat up and it doesn't change them at all. Whereas the vast majority of venoms, if you heat them up, they become inactive. I guess they're big. They can be big protein sort of style molecules, as opposed oh, yeah. to your. I mean, arsenic's a poison. It's pretty simple. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Look, a, a lot of po- a lot of venoms are big proteins, but there are also a lot of little peptides and things that are very short chained molecules that that are venoms as well. But by and large, yeah, the poisons tend to be that tend to be more stable than what the venoms are. And you're a toxinologist, not a toxicologist. Is this a, is there a Correct. similar difference between those two fields of endeavour? Yeah. Yep. So toxinologists work on venoms, and toxicologists work on poisons or drugs. And do you have a favourite jellyfish stinger, uh, horrible creature of the ocean? <laughs> No, they're not horrible. They're not <laughs> horrible. <laughs> look, I have I have lots of, of, of favourite animals, but look, if, if it comes down to it, if I had to pick out of, out of the jellyfish and thing, it's got to be the big box jellyfish. I mean, and and it's really easy from that point of view because you, you, when you break the animal down, it's it's ninety six percent water. So we're seventy five. It's ninety six percent water. It has twenty four eyes, of which twelve are image forming. So they have lenses, retinas, and pupils. They swim at the speed of an Olympic swimmer. They sleep at night. It looks like they've got four brains. And they have the world's most potent venom on board. So it's a little hard not to fall in love with an animal like that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so they, what, at, at, I mean, you, this is not an, a question any of us could probably answer, but at, 
how sentient are they? I mean, because jellyfish, blue bottles aren't, right? They just float around. But these guys are obviously related, but have yeah, brains. Yeah, look, it's, it's, it's a tough one. Um, and and we, I get into all sorts of arguments with people over this. The, the take-home that I've got for this is you've seen killer whales operate in a pod and, you know, and sort of school up a big whale and one goes in and attacks it. And people go, yes, that's cooperative behaviour and things of that nature. I have seen two box jellyfish corral up a school of fish. One swings in, grabs one of the fish and swims out, and then the other one swims in, stings another fish and swims away. Now, I'm not saying that these guys are cooperative behaviour, but boy, it looks like it. Sounds intelligent. So, yeah. Now, you know, draw the line where you want, but... I don't know. It's it's tough. These are animals on the bottom of the evolutionary tree. Yeah, they go to sleep at night. Yeah, we found we found that these animals could sleep twenty odd years ago. And I remember when I found it, and I you know, put the uh, wrote a paper on it, put it out there, and the number of replies and emails I got, which went along the lines of Seymour, you're an idiot. These are jellyfish. They don't sleep. It's like, well, I'm telling you, they do. And they're going, no, no, no. Sleep is restricted to the higher order vertebrates and things of that nature, you know, like the humans and the dolphins and the whales and the cows and things like that. And I'm going, well, here it is. About five or ten years ago, it finally, I think people started to accept it. And you, I've, now the numbers of, or the number of contacts I get from people that are doing sleep studies in humans, going, if we can understand how sleep operates in jellyfish, we're going to have a far better understanding of how sleep works in humans because jellyfish don't have these complex brains. So, yeah. it, it, as I said, it, you know, people just go, you know, they're just pieces of jelly that, that wander around in the ocean. They're not. You stand still in the ocean with a big box jellyfish, it will swim around you. There's no doubt about that at all. So, ah, uh, yeah. That's really <laughs> I'm not yeah, yeah, I, I'm not convinced they're as dumb as everybody makes them out to be. And so, and they've evolved along a pretty different line to us. Like, did they? They evolved eyes yes. separately to to mammal Correct. eyes or wherever eyes yep. first came from. Absolutely. Um, yep. And presumably, this intelligence has evolved separately, and maybe the sleep has evolved separately as well. I mean, that would be well, very yeah, you'd interesting. Have to think so. Yes, I mean, because certainly when you you go from from jellyfish up to the next. You know, a couple of taxes in the evolutionary tree, there's no indication of sleep there at all. And sleep doesn't come in until a lot higher up in the evolutionary tree. So you have to think, you know, along those lines that then sleep has evolved or these periods of inactivity, whatever you want to call it, has evolved separately for jellyfish than what it is for, you know, for vertebrates. Certainly the eyes have done the same sorts of things. So it's interesting. But then again, the eyes are very similar to ours. I mean, they have lenses, they have pupils and they have retinas. Okay. So, you know, it's, that's like us. That's like us. Are they a recent creature or are they ridiculously oh, no. ancient? been around for millions and millions and millions of years. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and, and, what, and what's next for your, for your research? Where do you think um, this is going to head over the next little while? Look, we're in a, a sort of, I was going to say we're in a holding pattern, but we're not really. I mean, we're, we're sort of, we do a lot of work on trying to work out how best to treat people when they've been stung. And, and we're trying to simplify first aid and what we can do. Because a, a lot of what we do for um, marine envenomings is very reactive. So you come in, you show pain, we treat it. Your heart starts to fail, we try and treat that. Your blood pressure goes up, we try and treat that. I'd like to be in a lot better position where we go, you've been stung by this, we know this and this is going to happen, so we're going to give you these drugs, 
to stop that from happening. So we're trying to get, a, for us, a, a better understanding of how these venoms operate. Um, and the other big thing that we're working on around at the moment is trying to get a handle on how these populations of jellyfish are going to change with time. So we've got some reasonable data that showed that the length of the season for big box jellyfish in Irukandji has gone from maybe one or two months, you know, 50 years ago to five or six months now, and how they've moved progressively further south. So 50 years ago, we were getting Irukandji stings probably no further south than the Whitsundays. We're now getting them as far south as Malula Bar and the western side of Fraser Island. And that seems to have increased over the last 50 years, and it's at least correlated with increased water temperatures. So with global warming and things of that nature, how far south can these animals go? Are they going to become more of a problem? Who knows? So they're the sorts of things we're playing around with at the moment. What will reach the south coast first, Irukandji or box jellyfish? Well, we have box jellyfish, don't we, already? But Yeah, you do. Big box jellyfish are never going to get down there because of the... the Basically, the big box jellyfish, their southern distribution is not temperature limited. It's environment limited. So they need something like a, a, a coral reef or something like that to stop big wave movement. Right, um, okay. So, so hence why they pull up at the Tropic of Capricorn. Um, Irukandji, completely different kettle of fish. Their, their southern distribution is temperature limited. Um, so if you look at Fraser Island this year, where they had a lot of the Irukandji stings there, the water temperature there was 29, 30 degrees C. I mean, that's unheard of for down there. That's incredible. And that's warm. Yeah, so as those water temperatures increase and as that goes further and further south, these animals are going to end up further and further south. There's there's, there's no doubt about that. And they're so tiny that they could just get washed washed down, I guess. They they, they could move quite quickly with the currents. East East Australian current. Yep, no problems. They'll travel down that without any trouble at all. What about blue ring octopus? Do you study them? I just thought of that. Sorry, I should have mentioned that earlier. Yeah, no, no. Yeah, no, blue rings, yeah, we certainly we do, we do work on blue rings as well. So they're found right throughout Australia. Um, more co- they, they seem to be more common down in the temperate areas, but I think that's more because of um, if they're easier to find there. But we certainly get them on the coral reef. You certainly get them in rock pools and things, you know, right around Australia. There's, there's several different species. Um, but, yeah, they're, they're another uh, animal that, again, is, is venomous. And first aid for those guys, again, if you're bitten, um, you're looking at if the person stops breathing, then you breathe for them. And once you've got them breathing again, they're as safe as houses. And heat, I guess. No, heat for these guys you don't need to worry about. Um, and, and that's because they're slightly different. The, the, the venom they have, the toxin they have, is a thing called tetrodotoxin, which is actually a toxin that is a poison as such. So okay. it's very temperature-stable, but it's just a slightly different system. So they have a set of bacteria that live in their salivary glands, which produces this toxin, which the animal then spits into you when it bites you. So uh, CPR is, is the first aid of choice for blue ring bites. And uh, I guess everybody should be happy to know you don't need to wee on somebody that gets stung then. Because yeah, certainly don't read wee that. On people. I, I don't know where this comes from. I think it's good for the peer but not the PE, I think. <laughs> right. Yeah, 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 that's right, yeah. yeah. And I think it came about, you know, like you're standing on the beach, I have to do something. Got to do something, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it in fact makes it worse. Okay. So, yeah, it, it, yeah it, it, it agitates the, the tentacles and things, and they will fire off more if you pee on someone that's been stung. So don't, it's just bad. <laughs> not <laughs> that, a good look. Not a good look. And that's similar with vinegar, <laughs> yeah. I guess, then, as well. Look, vinegar's a tough one. We've... we've published on this and, and we've got what we believe is good data that says that the application of vinegar actually increases the venom load in the victim. You know, by and large, to be honest, I actually don't care what you do 
once you've checked that the patient is breathing. Yep. If that patient is breathing, to be honest, I don't care what you do after that. Whether you inflict more pain on them or whatever, I don't care, as long as you keep them alive. Yep. So if they're not breathing, don't worry about vinegar, don't worry about anything, breathe for them. Once you bring them back to life, do whatever you like after that, but just keep them breathing. Okay. So that, 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 that's our take on it. You know, we've gone with the DRABC, so danger response to you, and then airways, breathing, and circulation. Once you've got that under control, I don't really care what you do. <laughs> no, well, I mean, it makes perfect sense, doesn't it? Because it's impossible to list all the dangers that you might face when you go to the beach. So Exactly. And let's, let's make this simple so that you know, people go, okay, I pulled someone out of the surf. I don't care whether they've drowned, whether they've been stung, or a shark's taken their leg off. Are they breathing? No. Breathe for them. Keep it simple. I think that's a good message. That's it for this episode of The Pod. Thanks very much to Associate Professor Jamie Seymour from James Cook University for talking to us about all things jellyfish and stingers and how you might treat them if you get stung yourself. If you'd like any more information on today's episode, get over to our website at www.thepodpodcast.net. That's www.thepodpodcast.net. And you'll find links there to Jamie's work and to all the music used in the episode. Thanks again. My name's Mark West. You'll be hearing from me again pretty soon, I'm pretty sure, on the pod.